Hello, everyone. I'm Elena Armijo, and I'm the founder of the C-Suite Collective. This is a company I created for executive leadership coaching and wellness that supports C-Suite executives, entrepreneurs, and founders. We support modern companies committed to fostering diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, holistic organizational growth, and generational impact for years to come. Now, more than ever, businesses are running faster and with fewer resources. Burnout, overwhelm, disconnection, and disillusionment are the new norm for teams struggling with an old paradigm. At the C-Suite Collective, we believe deeply that providing massive support for your teams through executive coaching and holistic practices will create an inclusive culture, higher levels of performance, sustainable change, and the organizational impact you desire. You can find us at the c-suitecollective.com. leaders be in the face of innovation? We'll look at that in our coaching tip for the week. And in our interview segment, we have Robert Kwong, a pianist and coach with a focus on decolonizing our creative expression, leadership development, and energy restoration. He grew up in Beijing before immigrating to America at nine years old and is an incredible human being with a passion for inclusion and belonging. I hope you enjoy the episode today. And remember, something powerful resides within you. I'm here to support you in seeing it and creating it. Who can leaders be in the face of innovation? So this is one of the things I work on a lot with my executive clients. When we're looking at creating a culture of creativity and exploration that maybe has not been nurtured or has been destroyed in the past two years with the pandemic. Innovation is one of those things that as a creative soul, if you're not given room or space to feel what you have inside you or a safe space to explore that, then most people will shut it down and not bring it to the surface when uh, when it's not invited. So the first thing I have for you is check your side of the street. Are you actually open to having innovation and creation in your space? Or are you still in a conversation where your way or the way of the board or the management team is going to be the way no matter what? So that's the very first thing to look at is, are you willing and open to being surprised by your people? The second place is look for places where you have discouraged innovation in the past. So sometimes I like to retrace my steps and look at what I might have said or done that would have people feel shut down or not safe enough to share their ideas. Did I make them feel wrong? Did I tell them that it was good, but we're never going to do something? Uh, Did I blame a budget constraint or anything that didn't have me taking ownership of hearing an idea and then not acting on it? We can always choose to not act on an idea, but people, again, need to be seen and heard. So can you acknowledge the idea that they're bringing to the table and then let them know when you will implement something like that? And the third thing that I would look at is where is there room for people to be innovative and creative? So on some of the bigger decisions, you might not feel like you have enough wiggle room to allow people to have time to come up with something different. And it might really affect a project or an outcome or a bottom line. So are there places where you can intentionally create room for people to explore, make a mess, clean it up and try again? Oh my gosh. Well, 
Thank you so much for being here, Robert. I have been excited to interview you. Um, we only recently met, and we've only met mm -hmm. virtually yeah. um, online, but I was a guest on your podcast recently, and I've been following your other podcast with uh, Christine Sachs and Juanita Molana Parra and Schnigas. Yes. That's, yeah. And dear friend, I just, Kathy. Yep. Yeah, my friend Kathy and and Kathy, she... She's a beautiful soul. But anyway, you you all have this beautiful podcast and your personal podcast as well. So welcome yeah. and thanks for being here. Thank you. It's always nice after holding space for a while to then to come in on someone else's space and have that um, flipped in some way. So it's really nice to be on the other end sometimes, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd love to just jump right in and have you share uh, your story. So you are a musician turned coach. Yeah. Musician was my first love, and it happened for me after I came to America. So originally, I was born in um, China, and I came to the United States when I was nine. And it was right around then that I started bugging my parents about wanting to take piano lessons and perhaps get a piano. At the time, they didn't take me too seriously, though, because it's like they were just assuming you know, it's like asking for a toy, but then in two weeks, you might not be interested anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and a piano is a little bit of a higher ask than that, you know? Yeah. yeah. So the story I have about that is I was visiting a family friend and they had an upright piano, an old upright piano. And I just started fiddling on it one day when I was visiting. And um, I was playing the Sound of Music tune, you know, the Do Re Mi song. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of able to figure it out by year. And the person was sort of like, oh, how long have you been playing? I didn't know you played. And I, I said, you know, I, I don't play, but, you know, I'm just sort of having fun right now. So it was actually thanks to that person, may she rest in peace, who recommended it's like, oh, you should definitely get this kid some piano lessons. I think there's something there. And um, that's sort of how it started. We found, a, you know, my parents helped find a piano teacher. Classical piano became sort of like a huge part of my daily life as a child starting then. So it was around nine that I started playing the piano. Um, I did take a gap in my 20s, but um, you know, it was something that I had been practicing and excelling at up to, you know, I was prepared to go to a music conservatory and go through all the auditions, which I did and got accepted and all of it. But then, you know, life gets more interesting and complicated, doesn't it? <laughs> so <laughs> that's how I got started in music. Thank you for sharing. I have a very similar story that I, I, um, you just made me think about when you were sharing that is at the time, as kids do, you know, I was interested in so much when I was in, I think it was third grade and I'd done ballet and I tried painting right. classes and all kinds of things. And my, my parents, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, but they really tried to make a dollar stretch with keeping kids entertained. And similar to you, I was like, I want to play the piano. And they had me wait like five years. I had to ask for five years straight before <laughs> they would actually get me lessons because, some, you know, they were, they were like your parents. They were like, look, this is a big investment. <laughs> right. What are you doing <laughs> with this? Like, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like if this is going to be like tomorrow, you decide to not wear your tutu, which is what pretty much happened. <laughs> right. <laughs> like we're not doing it. So um, fond memories of that. And like yourself, I think I ended up playing for five years before I took a break. So. Super cool. Yeah. It's something that, you know, a lot of kids 
And truthfully, culturally, a lot of Chinese families, it's always like the kids got to learn some piano. It's kind of a part of making someone well-rounded. And I was someone who was generally arts and humanities came a little more naturally, like visual arts and painting. But piano was the one that I seemed to have really focused on eventually all the way into, you know, when I started um, looking at colleges and universities and things like that. So it was just sort of laid out for me. And also, I had a great childhood piano teacher who taught me a lot about discipline and structure and, of course, listening, which I still use. These are muscles that still are relevant to me to this day. And I am still feeling, I still feel very fortunate to have that muscle memory. Agreed. Agreed. I think some of the the lessons you learn as a musician of excellence and and dedication and focus are unparalleled to skills that will transfer anywhere in the world. Yeah, I like to think so. And um, it's still a part of my life to this day. I'm so grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah. So you went to college and did this or what was next? Yeah. So I auditioned for um, music conservatories, did the whole thing. It was a very intense experience and all the preparation that you have to go into preparing for your audition. Um, I think all overall, all of the pieces I used for auditions, you know, probably I had an enemy for about a year. And that's, that's a long time to be with a project, right, of that length. So um, did the audition process. I got accepted to Oberlin Conservatory in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And at the time, my goal was to do their double degree program, which was, I, I, I'm pretty sure they still offer it. It's a five-year program. And that would mean, you know, in addition to being on the conservatory side, I could also double major in the Oberlin College. And to me, it sounded, um, it made sense for me because I didn't want to lose something that I had passion for and also had, was quite good at. But I also knew that there were other things in the world that I could explore. There were things I hadn't devoted so much time to that I'm still interested. So, you know, think of the kid who's at college away from parents for the first time and you can take a film class or take a comp, uh, like a, a writing composition class. And I always thought, in addition to being a piano performance major, I would have another focus. And it was up to me to figure out what that was. My experience in conservatory, though, eventually, I was having sort of an existential crisis of sorts. And part of it was Mm -hmm. due to, um, at that time, I was coming out as um, gay and queer. And then also, I was noticing, you know, once I was on my own and fully independent, I wasn't as confident in what I wanted to do with piano or who I wanted to be as a musician. And that really showed up um, during conservatory, where I was questioning a lot of my own kind of internal motivations. And it ultimately led me to drop out of conservatory, take a brief time off, which is um, less than desired for my parents, I will tell, tell you that. And during that time, I eventually reapplied to college and got into University of Colorado, Denver to study film production because there were just other areas in arts that I was interested in. And Mm -hmm. at the time, I thought, well, maybe this means, you know, my personal experience with music and like I said, the, the sort of like internal breakdown of sorts, maybe that meant I was I should focus on other things. I, I do have other skills. So I majored in that, graduated, and then 
soon after got into NYU for screenwriting, playwriting, and um, and uh, TV writing. So mm-hmm. that's what eventually brought me to New York City, and that was a positive decision. So I am glad in retrospect that I explored all of these things. It's interesting though. I had this idea that everything that I was focused in had to be like I put all of myself into it, and this is going to be the one sole thing that I devote myself to. Mm-hmm. Only to discover eventually, as an adult, that I am anything but that, <laughs> <laughs> and that in fact I'm very eclectic and eccentric as a person, and that my interests yeah. are multifaceted and varied. And I give myself permission these days to change with the seasons alongside my commitments, of course. But that took a long time to deprogram. I will tell you that I really thought the way to happiness and a happy life is just kind of like go at this one thing, whatever it was. And if it wasn't work out, pick something else. Go at it like your life depends on it. As yeah. it turns out, that has its shortcomings. <laughs> <laughs> well, and what do you think was the moment that you started to realize that and shift and transition to that mindset? It was, hmm, good question. I would say probably after I graduated from grad school, so from NYU, I got my MFA in writing. Again, another skill set that I still use to this day, as far as narrative and storytelling and looking yeah. at people's perspectives and voices. I would say it was after that because after grad school, it was sort of like, well, you could keep pursuing school, perhaps just go to the next tier or maybe focus on something else. But really, you're getting ready to enter what we call the real world. And I was like, okay, Mm. how am I going to apply all of these things, all these skills, and also the things that make me happy? And I think it was through that that I started looking to things that wasn't so craft or career-driven, like mindfulness, Mm -hmm. like meditation, and started exploring a little bit in spiritual practices and spirituality in general, just trying to get a grasp of it. Um, One thing I forgot to mention is I was raised um, atheist both in China and in the United States. So all of these mm-hmm. things felt very new and very foreign to me. And that, I couldn't say that I had like a logical conscious reason. I just felt like it was an unconscious thing that something about this area that seems quite mysterious to me um, really fascinated me. Mm. And so I think it was during around that time that I started looking at life like, oh, <laughs> it's not going to be like, just pick your lane and stick to that lane. Life is going to be a little bit more of a winding road. And it's not quite as clear as I thought it was. But it also meant there were other possibilities. It's just that, you know, how do you tackle that without it being overwhelming, but something that actually is a positive thing for you? Yeah. Well, and I hear the resilience behind that as well, right? The resilience that it takes to allow that new uh, way of thinking in. And I imagine, was there any fear in that way of thinking, the new, the new paths that were opening up? Yes, yes. Because sometimes you get that mirrored back to you. You know, oftentimes, especially with family, um, mm-hmm. they will reflect back to you some of the things that you're most concerned about and nervous about with your decisions. So it's not that those things were inaccurate or wrong or said out of maliciousness, but even I had trouble sometimes explaining my curiosity because it really wasn't fully logical all of the time. And I would say it was very much me following the breadcrumbs of my intuition. Um, so there definitely can be a lot of fear. 
I still, because during that time, following the intuition, the, the fear comes out when you just want an answer, when you just want someone to tell you what you are, what to do about it. Just tell me the answer to my life, you know? And I found myself looking at these different, you know, looking at um, caregiving, social work a little bit, looking at these different fields and just kind of sometimes hoping and praying a little bit like, please let this be the answer so that I don't come out the other side of it with more questions <laughs> about, <laughs> about myself. Yeah. This is it, right? This is it, right? Um, <laughs> I could have used a coach then. My goodness. <laughs> right. <laughs> Think about that. If I had a coach when I was 15, 16. Right. right. <laughs> and so looking back now, um, there's a reason for me to feel that incompletion or that discomfort. You know, despite it's not that these things weren't important to me, but I think I did struggle to to feel fully authentic and fully expressed alongside my drive for excellence and discipline and commitment and supporting myself. So mm-hmm. yeah. The fear was the fear's still there. <laughs> the fear's still there sometimes. But yeah. I have found some ways of being with it um, that I just am so happy that I have now, really. That's amazing. Well, and what was the transition to coaching? What was that like for you? Yeah, so that happened after I had graduated from school for a while. And eventually I found a job, uh, got a job at. New York City Ballet. And actually, it's in the finance department, which, you know, anyone who knows me are like, uh, what? <laughs> Where did that come <laughs> from? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I, um, I started working in nonprofit, you know, working at an office and doing things like that. So while I was there, I really tried to take advantage of the stability that it brought me. And so I mm-hmm. was the person where on my lunch break, I would be having a coaching session or on my lunch break, I would be working on um, a script that somebody had reached out to me about as a freelancer, which happened once, you know, but I was always that person who was busy exploring something else on my lunch break. And people were always confused, like, what is he doing all by himself there? And it's not because (laughs) I didn't, quote unquote, want to be there, but I just always have been that person where it's like, while I'm focused on that thing, do your job. And then on the other time, look at how else you could expand. So I started working with a coach while I was, you know, at New York City Ballet, again, on my lunch break uh, for a while. And eventually, I became curious enough about coaching, and I wondered if I could be a coach. And, you know, for many people who get into this industry, it was also looking at, you know, my job, my career, where it was, thinking, you know, do I want to take this risk? Maybe there are some opportunities here. But I do know that there's more to it than what I'm seeing on the surface. And so um, I became interested in coaching through going through a coaching training program and really seeing what it's like to be with the work that we do. So that's how I got into coaching. And um, I remember observing my first coaching training session when they had the live observations, right, which got disruptive for a little bit, but it's coming back now. And it was so fascinating to me. It was a place where people could be with their emotions, be with their authentic thoughts and feelings, and also being held accountable with their goals and their dreams and holding that tension. So yeah, it was, it's, um, that really sparked my curiosity. Yeah. 
Well, and you're a brilliant coach and leader now. So uh, my question for you is, what is music and creativity like now, as well as coaching? How do you hold the both end? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I actually credit coaching for bringing me back to music. Um, mm-hmm. By the time I was exploring coaching training or doing my one-year coaching training program, I had not really touched a piano for like 14 years. It just, you know, I have a keyboard here and I've had it for a while, but every time I sat down, I kind of had this like, I couldn't access a part of me. And and the mm-hmm. way that I would dramatically say is, I was like, okay, am I just dead on the inside? What is going on? Like, I can't get back to the place that mm-hmm. I was before. And so I didn't know what to do with that because I said, well, what else, how what is another way to play with piano? These are such big abstract ideas. I don't even know where to start. As I was doing coaching training though, something interesting happened um, about halfway through the training, which is I started um, through the discoveries and the breakthroughs I found in training about my life and what's happened to me in some ways. It somehow prompted me to go back into music, start taking lessons. And I was really curious to look at other things besides um, you know, piano performance, which is my background, mm-hmm. things like composition, things like improvisation, and also maybe learning a little bit about sound engineering. It was for mm-hmm. music, but also I knew the era we were entering, which is going to be a lot of this, you know, fidgeting yep. with, with cameras and microphones. Yep. <laughs> and I was like, I don't want that to overwhelm me, nor get in the way of my job. So um, it sort of organically happened. And as I was doing that, I started seeing the impact it was having on me spiritually, energetically. Um, I don't even talk about this very often, but I, I even some um, early childhood memories came back that I didn't know I had. And I took a little bit of research and actually being with this confusion to figure out that this is something that can happen on a somatic level. On a, um, mm-hmm. and, and the way that music can impact people it was far beyond what I had seen in conservatory and my classical training. And so, you know, I really credit coaching training with really jumpstarting me looking at things from outside the box a little bit, even with something I've been doing, quote unquote, my whole life. And so the way that the style that I play now, which I think you've heard a little bit, is so radically different from the way that I would practice and perform pieces then. And I just don't think I would have had the courage or the audacity without being in a container where everyone is supporting and empowering each other to do these things that mm-hmm. we keep saying we want to do and then we never do it. <laughs> yep. You know? Yep. So yeah. I always credit coaching with that. And I always I I I still go back to that moment to say, what an interesting turning point. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Well, and I'm curious, I love the foresight that you had to know, you know, that we're going to be in a digital age, that we're going to need better sound quality and video quality. And even I think about Aaron and all the work he does um, with just making a song these days, you know, and watching him actually produce it from start to finish has been really um, stimulating to watch. And I'm, I'm curious if you saw that coming, what do you... What do you see for leaders coming down the road in terms of creativity? Because that's Mm. what I actually hear is the theme through a lot of your work, is that your expansion and your creativity allows you to experience your life on a whole different level. 
Yeah. So what do you see for leaders? Wow, what an amazing question. Okay, I'm going to be bold. I think there are certain things in life that cannot be bought and cannot be taught. It's more like there are things, it's more like cultivating something that you were born with. And so there are certain intangible aspects of us that I will assert, even if having the resources can help you with that, it's ultimately not something that you can just purchase like a transaction. And so I think those things, those areas of your life, if that resonates with a listener, could be something where creativity, intuition, and actually taking care of your energy, something that to me is a spiritual practice, um, I think those things can really help you cultivate a certain understanding and develop a relationship to those things. So it's not to demonize, by the way, the idea mm -hmm. that we all need to earn money and we need to pay our bills or that we can achieve success in these tangible material ways. It's just that, again, I go back to, I believe there are certain things, including in coaching, that can provoke that. That is not something that you can just pick up off a shelf. And in fact, certain things cannot be taught. It is more like you are going to remember it for yourself and you're going to empower that for the rest of your life. So those aspects, because of how murky and hard to assess and measure they can be at times, I believe creativity can be a, a way to actually find some structure and support. And in fact, you can create a practice. It just might look a little bit outside of the box, perhaps, you know. Mm, that's really beautiful. And I'm hearing like, I like to think, you know, for me with singing, a common uh, phrase that people will say are, well, that sounds really great, but you were born with that. And I wasn't mm. born with that. And I'm similar to you. I'm like, well, everybody is born with something at, to their, their ability level. So I think everybody can sing and it might just be to the ability level that you have. But I love what you're pointing to around what is it that is calling you that you do relate to as a gift in your creativity? I relate to singing as a gift. Mm. You know, it's something I definitely worked hard and cultivated. And if you'd heard me sing for the very first time in sixth grade, it was a lot different than <laughs> where it ended up, you know? So there was definitely some cultivation and practice and skill, but I heard the calling, like it called me. I really think music called me forward and coaching called me forward too. So I love what you're saying. Absolutely. I believe that too. And it's why I, you know, my favorite part about coaching work is the being with the other and the connection. And, mm -hmm. you know, a podcast that I self-produce is called Side by Side. And part of the reason why I do that is because it reminds me, I, I just realized this not too long ago, actually. I didn't realize it at the time. But Side by Side is the way that I was able to develop and cultivate myself as a pianist. My teacher was literally sitting next to me in that stool for years and years, week after week. We make adjustments, yeah. we practice. Sometimes we have to face the fact that I didn't practice. <laughs> mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it was a side-by-side -side connection that really, that container has been so um, influential in my life, I'll say. So all of these things, all of these dynamics and ways of being with each other, I still value. It's just that now we can apply it with different intentions. For example, supporting someone's business or supporting someone's meditation practice. Mm. So what do you think is possible for the future if everyone is tapping into whatever their creative calling is? So I think this has been discussed quite a bit in other people's work already, like Brene Brown. But I do think in business, in um, economics, and in community building, there's a need 
and a hope in innovation. And that word can kind of be taken in any different direction. And so I feel like when we talk about leadership, which is something we both care about working with leaders, I do think looking at areas like that, how do you get a leader or someone in a position of power with great responsibility to be innovative, right? There's going to be some inherent tension to that. So to me, that's always a great opportunity to call forth your relationship to creativity because you are going to be facing a lot of different voices and a lot of different echo chambers. Um, even for me as a, as a musician, I forget mm -hmm. sometimes in some ways I could be perceived as rebelling against traditional structures or something like that, which is not my intention at all. But it mm -hmm. is more so just following, you know, my gut, my intuition in some ways. So I think if you're someone who believes innovation is important in whatever field or whatever community you care about, I think creativity, intuition, and also self-care are great partners to build. I love that you say partners too, because mm -hmm. they really are the partners to all of that, to opening it up. And it's such a gentle way of, of saying like you can have a partnership with those things as opposed to they have to be a certain way, or if you don't have them, you're not going to have access. It's more of a relationship-based approach that you take. Yeah, very, very mindset-driven. And then the part that I really cultivated more so in like when I'm old, you know, my later 20s, let's say, um, is that you can be with it, you can embody it as well, as well as a, a kind of a mental commitment. It's also something you can be with through your body. I actually didn't, really think about being a pianist as being that <laughs> embodied. Like I didn't think about my body that much, which is a wild thing which to say. Which is hilarious, right? <laughs> no, like I've seen so many musicians and pianists who are kind of disconnected from themselves while playing. It just was yeah. like yeah. all about, with all due respect, you know, Mozart or whatever, right? Yeah, <laughs> but or like, the precision. Yeah. yeah, and I've seen it where it's almost like they're not connected with what's happening. Um, yeah. Not that they can't be excellent because of their discipline, their excellence, and their inherent talent, but but mm -hmm. I find it funny now because being with the piano and being with music now, all it evokes is sort of this <laughs> emotional somatic experience, and I also it's up to me to sort of um, find meaning in that. Yeah, really beautifully said. Oh my gosh. Well, let's see. The very last question I like to ask most guests who come on the show is if you had one thing to say to all of us as we, we march forward in the future, uh, what would your phrase be? <laughs> okay. I'm going to sit with that for a second. I'm smiling right now, but, but people can't <laughs> see. I like to take a minute with these questions. <laughs> Okay, interesting. I'm not even sure what I mean by that, but um, it's it's um, I'm bothered. I think this year could be a season to to see what actually being unbothered, what that would take for you to be unbothered. And I mean by that by um, for those of us who are people pleasers or recovering people pleasers, who are always seeking permission, who are looking for the right way or the wrong way to do things, which usually means outside voices, to cultivate kind of being unbothered. And even from a you know, someone who does energy work, just being with certain people or certain things that come up for people, I think takes a little bit, the best word I found is to be unbothered. I used to say neutral, but unbothered is a little more sassy. And I think that's appropriate right now. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so I will go with oh, that. That's so good. <laughs> that's perfect. 
perfect. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. I love that. And I love your definition of it with the sass. And that's going on my wall. That'll be my posting. No, I used to, I used to repeat that, say, you know, maintain neutrality when I'm meditating or whatever. And now I'm like, maybe sometimes it's more like F that, <laughs> you know, exactly. Exactly. and just focus on what you're trying to do. Yes, exactly. That's right. Listen, <laughs> there's no reason to not, not bring this ass. So, yeah. oh my gosh, Robert, thank you so much. Thank you for your heart and your compassion and your wisdom and your, uh, your grace with which you're living and leading your life and leading others. It's such an honor to hear your voice. Thank you. I feel the same way with everything that you're doing and your leadership. And it's been so fun speaking with you. Thank you. 